0: Orleans, the Crescent City, the Big Easy. In the popular imagination, it's a spooky, swampy city down south, a place where crumbling plantation houses and clapboard churches rub shoulders, where voodoo and witchcraft still reign. A city surrounded by live oaks and bayous, gators and mystery. Journalist Frederick Starr wrote, For in the realm of the written word, Louisiana is less a place than an idea less a physical reality than a symbol. A symbol of everything that the New England tradition in American literature and culture and thought is not. Louisiana represents the heart over the intellect. Indeed, it can be said that the popular image of New Orleans is nothing but a case of America orientalizing itself. You know this version of New Orleans, of course, from countless movies, songs and video games, New Orleans is the place where the House of the Rising Sun is. It's where Kananga's goons murder British secret agents during jazz funerals in Live and Let Die. It's the place where Mike Leroy is brought back to life by Black Magic so he can fight evil in the Shadow Man video games. You might remember that one if you're of a certain age and owned an N64. It's where the minions of Cthulhu practice their dark ceremonies in H.P. Lovecraft's famous story, The Call of Cthulhu. It's even where the sexy vampires from Anne Rice novels, such as Interview with the Vampire, live, love, die, and rise again. I myself visited New Orleans over 10 years ago, drawn, like many others, to this exoticised, Orientalized vision of a city, half in darkness and half in light. But this legacy, this interpretation of the city comes largely from the work of one man, an Irishman of sorts, a man who left his mark on the world forever and was then himself largely forgotten in his home country. I'm Kean and this is Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. This episode, Lafcadio Hearn, the man who invented spooky New Orleans. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're welcome back to the cabin in the woods for this episode of White Atlantic Weird. Help yourself to a glass of something to put a little fire in your belly. Tonight I'm enjoying a little bourbon cask whiskey from West Cork Distillers. So settle down and make yourself comfortable as we get into the strange tale of Lafcadie O'Hearn, a man who did much to create the myth of New Orleans as a place of magic and mystery. Now, this is an episode that has been brewing for a very long time. Ever since I first discovered the work of Lafcadie O'Hearn in college, I've wanted to write or record a piece on him but as my research on the man became more serious while preparing for this episode, it became more and more difficult to know just where to begin with the life of this enigmatic man. He lived in so many places. He's variously referred to as an Irish writer, an English writer, or an American writer, depending on who's doing the telling. And his work shaped our conception of so many different cultures. Eventually I decided to provide just a few details of his early life, and then to focus on the period in which he lived in New Orleans. Hearn is most closely associated with Japan, but a close scrutiny of that period of his life will have to wait for another day. I first came across Hearn in the Bull Library at University College Cork years ago. I was going through a phase of interest in the history of Japan. I was particularly interested in tales of Westerners who had visited Japan during its closed-off period. For several hundred years, Japan was in its Sakoko period, its time of national isolation. Between 1633 and 1853, trade with other nations was limited and tightly controlled, and to most outsiders it was a completely closed country, mysterious and forbidding. I was really taken with the idea that visiting Japan during this period for Europeans must have been like entering a mysterious closed world. There are some fascinating cases of Europeans who did make it to Japan during this period, and I was very taken, in particular, with the story of William Adams, the English sailor who ended up living in Japan around the year 1600. Adams went native in every sense of the term, adopting Japanese dress and customs, marrying a local, taking a position as an advisor to the shogun, or military governor, and eventually earning the rank of samurai. Now, Adams' story is the model for the plot of the novel Shogun, by James Clavell, as well as the 1980 TV miniseries of the book, and did much to stimulate American interest in Japanese culture at that time. All in all, Adam's story has always fascinated me, for I've always loved tales in which a character enters a strange new world and learns to make himself at home there. It was during my research into characters similar to Adam's that I came across the work of one Lafcady O'Hearn. Imagine my surprise to learn that here was an Irishman sort of, though we'll get to that, who had lived a similar life of adventure to Adam's. Here was a writer who had journeyed to exotic shores in the late 19th century, fallen in love with Japanese culture and written beautiful books about Japanese folklore. How was it possible that I had never heard of this guy before? Why was his name not mentioned alongside Yeats and Joyce? Or even if you were to limit yourself strictly to Irish writers of the fantastic, why not alongside Lefanu and Bram Stoker? Well, nationality is a tricky subject when it comes to Hearn. His backstory is as convoluted as it is exotic, and he deliberately restyled his own origins many times over the years. Suffice it to say for this episode that he was the son of an Anglo-Irish officer and a Greek woman, was born on an island in Greece, but grew up largely in rough mines in Dublin. As I said before, he is today largely remembered for his work popularising Japanese folklore in the West, in particular thanks to his 1904 book, Quiet Anne, Stories and Studies of Strange Things. Often forgotten today in Ireland, Hearn is read by schoolchildren in Japan, where his home in Matsu has been preserved as a museum. But this defining period came relatively late in his life. Hearn didn't move to Japan until he was 40. And to jump to this point in his career overlooks some of the most interesting and influential things he ever did. Before travelling to Japan, Hearn lived for years in America. Indeed, he is often remembered there today as being a primarily American writer. From being a practically penniless emigrant in Cincinnati, Ohio, to a successful career writing sensationalist yellow journalism that fetishized the grimy, seedy, criminal underbelly of that fair city, Hearn was to follow his heart in a never-ending search for the exotic lifestyle his romantic nature craved and in 1877 he moved to New Orleans, optimistically naming that most unusual of American cities, the Gateway to the Tropics. Hearn spent ten years living and writing for newspapers in New Orleans. Much of his work there focused on crime, voodoo, superstition, and the more sensational aspects of life in that multicultural metropolis. But he also wrote much about food, cooking, language, and other less salacious subjects. He was a strange and somewhat sad man. A friend of his during this time described him as being not happy and not calculated to make others happy. He spent his life looking for a home, but also chasing an ideal. He was a mysterious figure, short and with one crippled eye of which he was bitterly ashamed, always posing for photographs in profile. During his New Orleans years, he wrote primarily for the City Item and the Times Democrat but also for Harper's Weekly, Cosmopolitan and Harper's Bazaar, also creating his own woodcut cartoons for many of the articles. He translated scandalous French writers, scoured the multiracial brothels of the back streets, collected folk songs and voodoo traditions, writing thousands of pieces for his dedicated audience of readers. He recorded a somewhat airbrushed version of his day-to-day life writing for the papers. Early in the morning I visit a restaurant, where a heavy breakfast costs only about 25 cents. Then I slip down to the office and rattle off a couple of leaders on literary or European matters and a few paragraphs based on telegraph news. This occupies about an hour. Then the country papers, half French, half English, altogether barbarous, come in from all the wild, untamed parishes of Louisiana. Madly I seize the scissors and the paste pot and construct a column of crop notes. This occupies about half an hour. Then the New York dailies make their appearance. I devour their substance and take notes for the ensuing day's expression of opinion. And then the work is over, and the long golden afternoon welcomes me forth to enjoy its perfume and its laziness. It would be a delightful existence without ambition or hope of better things. Always a romantic, Hearn despised modernity in all its forms. As Frederick Starr writes in his 2000 collection Inventing New Orleans... By contrast, the French and Creole world of South Louisiana went straight to Hearn's heart. He revelled in what he was sure was its authenticity and contrasted it to what he was equally convinced was the artificial world of business, politics and male striving. This better world of Creole culture he conceived as feminine and its chief glories, language, music and cuisine as the essence of civilization at any time or place. He believed, as he would also come to do about Japan, that he was witnessing the final flowering of an ancient, beautiful culture about to be snuffed out by the so-called Tide of Progress. Hearn would chase his romantic visions from city to city, from country to country. When writing about his expectations of life in New Orleans, he reveals his fantasies and contrasts them with reality. My idea of perfect bliss would be ease and absolute quiet, silence, dreams, tepidness, Great quaint rooms overlooking a street full of shadows and emptiness. Friends in the evening, a pipe, a little philosophy, wandering under the moon. I ought never to have been born in this century, because I live forever in dreams of other centuries and other faiths and ethnics. Dreams rudely broken by the sound of cursing in the street below. Cursing in seven different languages. Think of the times we could have. Delightful rooms with five large windows opening on piazzas shaded by banana trees. Dining at Chinese restaurants and being served by Manila waitresses with oblique eyes and skin like gold. Visiting sugarcane plantations, scudding over to Cuba. Dying with the mere delight of laziness, laughing at cold and smiling at the news of snowstorms a thousand miles away. Eating the cheapest food in the world and sinning the sweetest of sins. And so at last we come to the subject of voodoo. Voodoo, of course, is a type of religion informed both by West African religion and elements of Catholicism. It's a product of the slave trade and of the mixing of peoples and ideas that occurred in places such as Louisiana during that time. Voodoo is generally regarded as being a fully fleshed out religion, with its own complex belief structure and cosmology. The similarly named hoodoo, on the other hand, is more of a set of witchcraft-related superstitions and practices – Of course, the Europeans and white Americans who chronicled these practices back in the 19th century were not always fussy about applying this definition, resulting in a definite blending of these two ideas in popular culture. And yet Hearn, rather culturally sympathetic for the time in which he was writing, often describes voodoo as being a religion comparable to any other. He even correctly attributes many of its more superstitious elements as being remnants of an older European Christian influence rather than an African one. In New Orleans Superstitions from 1886, Hearn records voodoo as being a dying cultural artefact. The question, what is voodooism, could scarcely be answered today by any resident of New Orleans unfamiliar with the life of the African west coast or the superstitions of Haiti, either through study or personal observation. The old generation of planters in whose day voodooism had a recognised existence, so dangerous as a motive power for black insurrection that severe measures were adopted against it, has passed away, and the only person I ever met who had, as a child in his coloured nurse's care, the rare experience of witnessing a voodoo ceremonial, died some three years ago at the advanced age of 76. As a religion and imported faith, voodooism in Louisiana is really dead, The rites of its serpent worship are forgotten. The meaning of its strange and frenzied chants, whereof some fragments linger as refrains in Negro song, is not now known even to those who remember the words. And the story of its former existence is only revealed to the folklorist by the multitudinous debris of African superstition which it has left behind it. These only, I propose, to consider now, for what is today called voodooism in New Orleans means not an African cultus, but a curious class of Negro practices, some possibly derived from it, and others which bear resemblance to the magic of the Middle Ages. What could be more medieval, for instance, than moulding a waxen heart and sticking pins to it, or melting it slowly before a fire, while charms are being repeated with the hope that as the waxen heart melts or breaks, the life of some enemy will depart? The fear of what are styled voodoo charms is much more widely spread in Louisiana than anyone who had conversed only with educated residents might suppose. And the most familiar superstition of this class is the belief in what I might call pillow magic, which is the supposed art of causing wasting sickness or even death by putting certain objects into the pillow of the bed in which the hated person sleeps. Feather pillows are supposed to be particularly well adapted to this kind of witchcraft, It is believed that, by secret spells, a voodoo can cause some monstrous kind of bird or nondescript animal to shape itself into being out of the pillow feathers. It grows very slowly and by night only, but when completely formed, the person who has been using the pillow dies. Another practice of pillow witchcraft consists in tearing a living bird asunder, usually a cock, and putting portions of the wings into the pillow. A third form of the black art is confined to putting certain charms or fetishes, consisting of bones, hair, feathers, rags, strings, or some fantastic combination of these and other trifling objects, into any sort of a pillow used by the party whom it is desired to injure. A Spanish resident told me that her eldest daughter had been unable to sleep for weeks owing to a fetish that had been put into her pillow by a spiteful coloured domestic. After the object had been duly exercised and burned, all the young ladies' restlessness departed. They are viewed as incipient voodoo tupilex. The sign of the cross is made over them by Catholics, and they are promptly committed to the flames. In St John's Eve, Hearn writes about a voodoo ceremony, this time emphasising the weirdness and scariness of voodoo. It's a far more sensationalist take, perhaps more in line with the grisly crime reporting for which he was well known in the city. This article reminds me powerfully of the Cthulhu cult, as described in Lovecraft's famous story, and I have to wonder if that Louisiana swamp-dwelling tribe of Old One worshippers had its origins in Hearn's tale. St John's Eve is specially devoted to the worship of the Voodoos. It is on that night that they congregate at some secret meeting place on Lake Pontchartrain, changed from time to time, and hold their religious dances and impious ceremonies of worshipping the Prince of Evil, for, in their theology, the devil is God, and it is to him they pray. Voodooism is rapidly dying out, even among the Negroes of Louisiana, but for all that, a Negro is frightened to death if he is hoodooed, and with reason. The secret magic of the Voodoos was nothing more than an acquaintance with a number of subtle vegetable poisons, which they brought with them from Africa and which caused their victims to fade gradually away and die of exhaustion. Every St. John's Eve, thousands of persons visit the lake ends in the hope of coming upon the voodoo's, but few succeed in finding them. On St. John's Eve last year, the night was dark, and on the eastern sky hung a black cloud, from which now and then burst flashes of lightning, which lit up the road, the bayou, and the surrounding swamp with a lurid glow. In fit introduction, to what was to follow. Behind, the hundreds of small watchfires along the shore twinkled like stars in the distance, and where they were built upon little points of land, they were reflected in the water so brightly that duplication added a peculiar weirdness to the scene. It was about three-quarters of a mile below Milneberg, and the place was appropriately selected, for certainly no more dismal and dreary spot could have been found. Citywards, the swamp, with its funereal cypress, "'stretched in gloomy perspective, while in front, "'lapping the rushes and stumps, the ripples in the lake came in, "'the water appearing almost black from the vegetable matter held in suspension. "'Near the fire were two or three tables laden with gumbo and dishes of rice, "'while on the embers hissed pots of coffee. "'The last addition to the wild dancers was most affected of all, "'and in a sort of delirium he picked up two of the candles "'and marched on with them in his hand.' When he arrived opposite the Queen, she gave him something to drink out of a bottle. After swallowing some, he retained a mouthful which, with a peculiar blowing sound, he spurted in a mist from his lips, holding the candle so as to catch the vapour. As it was alcohol, it blazed up, and this attempt at necromancy was hailed with a shout. Then commenced the regular voodoo dance, with all its twistings and contortions. Two of the women fell exhausted to the floor in a frenzy and frothing at the mouth, and the emaciated young man was carried out of the room unconscious. Hearn also gave a detailed biography of a well-known voodoo elder, a former slave captured from Senegal in The Last of the Voodoos. If Hearn is to be trusted, this article shows the opulent heights to which a voodoo priest could rise in 19th century New Orleans. In the death of John Montanet, At the age of nearly a hundred years, New Orleans lost, at the end of August, the most extraordinary African character that ever obtained celebrity within her limits. Jean Montanet, or Jean Lafichelle, or Jean Latany, or Jean Racine, or Jean Grigri, or Jean Macaque, or Jean Bayot, or Voodoo Jean, or Bayou Jean, or Dr. Jean, might well have been termed the last of the Voodoos. Not that the strange association with which he was affiliated has ceased to exist with his death, but that he was really the last important figure of a long line of wizards or witches whose African titles were recognized and who exercised an influence over the colored population. Swarthy occultists will doubtless continue to elect their queens and high priests through years to come, but the influence of the public school is gradually dissipating all faith in witchcraft and no black hierophant now remains capable of manifesting such mystic knowledge or of inspiring such respect as Voodoo John exhibited and compelled. There will never be another Rose, another Marie, much less another Jean Bayou. John possessed the mysterious Obi power, the existence of which has been recognised in most slaveholding communities and with which many a West Indian planter has been compelled by force of circumstances to effect a compromise. Soon it became rumoured that he was a seer of no small powers and that he could tell the future by the marks upon bales of cotton. I have never been able to learn the details of this queer method of telling fortunes, but Jean became so successful in the exercise of it that thousands of coloured people flocked to him for predictions and counsel and even white people, moved by curiosity or by doubt, paid him to prophecy for them. Finally he became wealthy enough to abandon the levy and purchase a large tract of property on the Bayou Road, where he built a house. His land extended from Prier Street on the Bayou Road as far as Roman, covering the greater portion of an extensive square now well built up. In those days it was a marshy green with a few scattered habitations. At his new home John continued the practice of fortune-telling, but combined it with the profession of Creole medicine, and of arts still more mysterious. By and by, his reputation became so great that he was able to demand and obtain immense fees. People of both races and both sexes thronged to see him, many coming even from faraway Creole towns in the parishes, and well-dressed women, closely veiled, often knocked at his door. Parties paid from ten to twenty dollars for advice, for herb medicines, for recipes to make the hair grow, for cataplasms supposed to possess mysterious virtues. But really, made with scraps of shoe leather turned into paste, for advice what ticket to buy in the Havana lottery, for aid to recover stolen goods, for love powders, for counsel in family troubles, for charms by which to obtain revenge upon an enemy. They poured money into his hands so generously that he became worth at least $50,000. Then indeed did this possible son of a Bambara prince begin to live more grandly than any black potentate of Senegal, He had his carriage and pair, worthy of a planter, and his blooded saddle horse, which he rode well, attired in a gaudy Spanish costume, and seated upon an elaborately decorated Mexican saddle. At home, where he ate and drank only the best, scorning claret worth less than a dollar the litre, he continued to find his simple furniture good enough for him. But he had at least fifteen wives, a harem worthy of Búbacar Segu. White folks might have called them by a less honorific name, but John declared them his legitimate spouses according to African ritual. Most famously, Hearn wrote about the well-known voodoo queen of New Orleans, Marie Laveau. Upon her death, he wrote a piece on her life that is extremely sympathetic, though oddly sceptical, about any element of the fantastic in her doings. Marie was certainly a very wonderful old woman with a very kind heart, Whatever superstitious stories were whispered about her, it is at least certain that she enjoyed the respect and affection of thousands who knew her, of numbers whom she befriended in times of dire distress, of sick folks snatched from the shadows of death and nursed by her to health and strength again with that old Creole skill and knowledge of natural medicines, which is now almost a lost art. In her youth, she was a very beautiful woman, one of the most beautiful, perhaps, of those famous free women of colour who have almost wholly disappeared within the last 20 years. It is pretty certain that the strange stories in circulation about Marie Laveau were wholly due to her marvellous skill in the use of native herb medicines and her ready wit also in aiding those who came to her for advice or relief. Her medicines were almost infallible... Her tisans were elixirs, and her kind heart inspiring her to undertake any trouble with the view of alleviating misery or securing the happiness of those in whom she became interested. In the Great Epidemic of 1853, a committee of citizens was appointed to wait upon her, and to beg her to send her aid to the fever-smitten, numbers of whom she saved. It is also said that whenever Marie could be induced to exercise her influence to save the life of a condemned prisoner, she rarely failed, nor were the fruits of her interference ever regretted. No shrewder judge of character could have been found, and when Marie interceded there was generally good ground for mercy. Lafcadio Hearn eventually left New Orleans in 1887 for a life among the Caribbean islands. Perhaps he was always fated to leave New Orleans in search of a lifestyle even more exotic. He had, after all, described the city as a dead bride with a crown of orange flowers, a beautiful but sad place like Lafcadio himself he wrote that i had hoped to find eternal summer in new orleans but my hopes have been frost-burned by this point in his life he was longing for the orient and even the melting pot of new orleans with its many cultures races and superstitions was no longer exotic enough for him as it turned out the caribbean would not be exotic enough for this wanderer either and his true home the place where his life's work and lasting influence would be, lay still further east. But that's a story for another day. Though it may simply have been a stopping-off point for Hearn on his journey into increasingly alien cultures, New Orleans was changed forever by Hearn's writings there. The popular image of the Crescent City was forever cemented in the public imagination. It was to be a place of mystery and magic forever after, a fact that the local tourist industry plays on to this day. Well, there's a conga lady. Not long ago, in New Orleans, Louisiana, named Marie Lavoie. Believe it or not, strange as it seems, she made a fortune selling voodoo and in and dreams. She was known throughout the nation as the voodoo queen. Folks, come to her... Hi folks, uh, I have something of a postscript here because as I was wrapping up this episode, just finishing up on the editing and production of it, I happened to pick up a book and see something that I didn't know about Levcati O'Hearn that kind of touches on what this episode is about. So I'm going to add in a little extra piece of information here. So the book I picked up was Book of the Dead, The Complete History of Zombie Cinema by Jamie Russell. As it sounds, it's a, it's a book about the history of uh, zombies in films. But the early chapters are a little bit about the the history of the idea of the zombie in in Western culture primarily. And the very first chapter, the very first page, when I I was just flicking through, I haven't read this book for years, imagine my surprise to read this. So it says, It was in 1889, in the pages of Harper's Magazine, that the zombie made its debut appearance in the English-speaking world, in a short article by journalist and amateur anthropologist Lafcady O'Hearn, entitled The Country of the Comer's Back. Although the term zombie was first recorded in the Oxford English Dictionary in 1819 and was frequently heard mentioned by slaves in America's Deep South in the latter part of the 18th century, it was Hearn's article that became the first widely circulated report of the existence of the living dead. So it then gives some standard background information about Lafcadio Hearn, and it mentions how he went to the island of Martinique in 1887, just after he left New Orleans. Among the many stories and legends he came across on his travels around the island, there was one in particular that fascinated him, the story of the Cor Cadavre, or Walking Dead. Wherever he went, the islanders talked in hushed tones about the disaster that would befall anyone unlucky enough to encounter one of the horrific beings known as zombies. Whenever Hearn asked them to explain what these creatures were and where they came from, his questions were greeted with tightly sealed lips. No one, it seemed, was willing to enlighten him about the corps cadav, and he could only speculate about the link between these mysterious monsters and the island's nickname of Le Pays des revenants the country of the comers' back. Even when Hearn did find people who were willing to speak to him about the corps cadaver, The contradictory anecdotes, vague stories and superstitious mumblings he encountered proved more confusing than illuminating. His journey through the mountainous region near Calabas was typical of his experience. Spending the night in the home of a local family, Hearn decided to question them about island superstition. As supper was being cleared away, the traveller asked his host's eldest daughter to tell him what she knew of the zombie. Replying in French, the language stamped on the island's populace by years of colonial rule, The young girl gave him an answer that was as vague as it was intriguing. Zombie, mais ça fait des la nuit, zombie. It is something that causes disorder in the night. Perplexed, Hearn tried asking the girl's mother for her views on the subject. The old woman gave him a longer, though no more illuminating explanation. When you pass along the high road at night and you see a great fire and the more you walk to get to it, the more it moves away, it is the zombie that makes that. Or if a horse with three legs passes you, that is a zombie. Warming to the topic, her daughter chimed in with some additional information. Or again, if I were to see a dog that high, holding her hand about five feet above the floor, coming into our house at night, I would scream, Me zombie! So that was pretty interesting. Um, I don't have access to a lot of Hearn's Caribbean writings myself, so I didn't know that his writing was connected with the history of the the introduction of the zombie into Western uh, into Western ideas. So I did some digging on this one. At first, I had difficulty finding the original article. Um, it seems to have been published under that title, The Country of the Comer's Back, when he wrote it for Harper's Magazine in 1889. But uh, I was unable to find it under that title. However, it is a chapter in his book, Two Years in the French West Indies, under a different title, La Guia Apologies for my garbled French there. And yeah, the story basically follows uh, what you just heard from Jamie Russell's book of the dead. Uh, a few things worth mentioning, one is that um, Haitian voodoo is its own separate strand. It's considered quite different to Louisiana voodoo. Uh, another thing is that the modern idea we have of the zombie, I don't really think was quite in place at this point. Most of my reading seems to suggest as this story does that a zombie was a more generic term for spooks or spirits of different kinds, and it hadn't yet congealed into the idea of the either a walking corpse or a person who has been cursed in some way and, and made into a sort of a mindless slave. Both of those ideas, of course, um really taking off in the Western imagination in the nineteen twenties, with uh, a few other British or rather uh, Western anthropologists coming in and writing books about it. But I was pretty excited to find that little tidbit right at the end as I was wrapping up the episode. Oh, and one other thing worth mentioning is that though the name The Country of the Comers Back, which I suppose is a direct translation of what the name of the island would be in French, um, even though that sounds very evocative, and uh, especially when we are talking about it in the context of zombies, I have read from at least one source, the Tellers of Weird Tales blog, that this actually originally referred to the fact that the island was supposed to have been so lovely and wonderful that uh, anybody who visited would surely come back and return to enjoy it uh, once again. This has been another bourbon-swilling episode of Wide Atlantic Weird. My primary resources for this episode were the Hearn biography, A Fantastic Journey by Paul Murray and Inventing New Orleans, compiled by S. Frederick Starr. I also took from my visit some years ago to the Lafcadio Hearn exhibit at the Dublin Writers' Museum where the staff were extremely helpful. I remember that by chance the author Paul Murray was giving a lecture on Hearn that evening at Trinity College but I couldn't stay in the city that evening for it. My copy of A Fantastic Journey I picked up in the Crescent City itself many years ago. New Orleans did not fail to live up to my expectations and I had an absolute blast there. Authentic or not, the city has an image to look up to, and it makes sure to do so. Finally, I also visited the Lofcadio hearn Japanese Gardens in Tremor, County Waterford. Hearn spent holidays at this seaside town during his own youth in Ireland, and now this wonderful project does great work to make his name and his writings better known in Ireland. Once again, the staff there were absolutely fantastic, giving me lots of time and information, and I highly recommend a visit there as they're always coming up with great creative ways for the public to engage with Hearn's writing. So if you like what you've been hearing, you can help us out in a small number of ways. Uh, whatever app you're using to listen to the podcast, please give us a bunch of stars and a rating, write a little something in there, tell us a story, tell us we're doing a good job, or if you have any suggestions for upcoming episode, we'll certainly welcome those as well. And we're happy to read out anything that you might uh, want us to do so uh, for any communications. Apart from that, uh, the next best thing you can do is to share episodes with anyone who you think might be interested. So as uh, sharing things on social media is always appreciated. On Twitter, we are at Strange Ireland. On Facebook, we are WideAtlanticWeird. And on Instagram, we're Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. So stay tuned f- until the next episode. We might have a few more episodes coming forward on the evolution of the concept of New Orleans as a spooky or mysterious place. I've got a lot more ideas that we could take with this, but it all depends on uh, how much work I have got to do. So, until then, thanks for listening. Stay safe. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.